So the homework. I apologize, okay? I had to make a tough decision. I was really looking at the pace of the class, which I'm fine with. Don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, we've gone over some good stuff um, and all that good stuff. But um, if I try to get into the Middle Ages, uh, I won't get past the Middle Ages in this class. I, I mean, I really enjoy the Middle Ages. Um, and if I don't get to the Reformation at a Reformed church, I'm not sure I'll be asked to teach again. So um, I, I, I made the tough decision that uh, I'm going to do the Middle Ages through this handout, okay? Um, sorry to give you homework if you're a regular. I do ask that you read it, um, maybe just, you know, a couple pages a day. Um, it's five pages front and back, though, so that comes out to about ten. Bear in mind, it's pretty big font. Um, it's broken up into sections and stuff, so it's really not as long as it probably seems. Um, and I was as, yeah, <laughs> thank you, I appreciate that. I was as concise as I could be, you know what I mean? In some ways, that's not a good thing. I mean, like like Wycliffe and the Lollards, I give them a little snippet. I could go on and on about those guys. But at least, you know, uh, give you a general idea of the big deal highlights and stuff like that um, so that we can, you know, have plenty of time uh, uh, to finish up the ancient church today uh, to get into the Reformation. I'm going to take my time on the Reformation. Not, I mean, I can't get into everything. There's so much. But I'm going to take my time. not going to rush. Talk about this stuff uh, that led up to the Reformation and the Reformation itself. I really want to take our time on the Puritans and obviously as Presbyterians, get into a little bit of Presbyterian history. Obviously nothing that's going to do it justice. Uh, but so anyways, that's what the handout's about. Um, after the ancient church comes the Middle Ages. So if you could read that um, when you get home. If you have any questions or you want me to elaborate on anything, please just email me. Most of you have my email. If you don't, come and ask me after church. I'll give it to you. Ask somebody else. Um, I enjoy it when people email. People always do that, and they always apologize up and down. Sorry, I know it's such a bother. And I'm like, no, it's not. I, I studied for years so that I could you know, answer these kind of questions and stuff. I enjoy that very much. So please don't hesitate to email. It's not a bother. Um, and uh, feel free to do that, okay? All right, so with that, I really would like to um, uh, get through the ancient church, and then I'd like to at least hit on a couple things in the Middle Ages, if I have time. And I'm going to, if it sounds like I'm going a mile a minute, it's because I do want to get to a couple things so that we don't skip the Middle Ages in class altogether. I'd really like to get to Aquinas and Joan of Arc, um, and I'll explain kind of why I've set those aside for class today. So if the first part seems like I'm going really fast, uh, that's kind of the reason. So, um from last class, though, we left off on Athanasius. I covered most of the, the big stuff that I really wanted to hit with him, but I just want to kind of finish uh, a little bit with Athanasius and also go a little bit quickly over kind of some of the stuff that was going on during the 300s at this time, some of the background stuff, okay? So um, while that the Arian controversy is going on, Athanasius is being banished. He's being brought back. Um, you know, the, the church is trying to deal with this, this very difficult controversy. Kind of in the background, okay, um, the gospel is continuing to spread, and I want to be—I want to make sure in the class I kind of keep a track um, with everybody as to how the gospel is spreading. If you remember, I had talked about by the time you get to about 100 A.D., okay, with the end of the apostolic era, the church is certainly not huge; it's not dominant, but it has spread pretty far for that day and age, all things considered. Okay, the gospel had gone throughout the mid—what is today the Middle East, uh, um, large parts of North Africa, and large parts of the southern portion of uh, what is today Western and Eastern Europe, okay? From 100 to 300, okay, the gospel has continued to spread north, all right? It's gone all the way up to the British Isles, okay? Um, some places where, uh, and, and it's continued to grow in all those other places that I talked about, all right? Now the church is definitely a force to be reckoned with by the time you get to 300 AD, and that was one of the primary motivations of Constantine to say, this continual persecution of Christians isn't going to work. The church continues to grow. They're a part of our culture. we got to deal with it. Now, whether his conversion was sincere or not, I have no question that part of the reason uh, why he was so open and vocal about his conversion was partially because he was trying to deal with um, what was from the pagan world, the fact that the church was not going away. Okay, um, So it's grown throughout the Middle East, it's grown throughout North Africa, it's grown throughout the southern portion of Eastern and Western Europe, but it's also going north. Okay, Some places where it hasn't hit yet would be today, what is kind of uh, uh, Germany and some of, some of the countries kind of around there. That was um, inhabited mostly by what we would call, or what they called at the time, the German tribes, okay? Uh, these were mostly agricultural farming people who mostly just wanted to be left alone. We're going to talk about later, they attacked the Roman Empire and they're the barbarians and stuff, but originally they really were not that interested in warfare. It was something that was sort of forced upon them, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, uh, what is today Wales and England it wasn't dominant, but there was still strong Christian presence, okay? And then all the way up into uh, what is today France, okay? Um, and uh, 
the sort of kind of southern portion of what is Scandinavia, like uh, Belgium and Denmark and stuff like that. Um, uh, hadn't really reached the upper echelons of Scandinavia. That was really kind of no man's land. Most people in the Roman Empire didn't even really know that existed. They really had no idea, <clears throat> excuse me, what was up there. That was just sort of northern, and they'd heard rumors about these crazy people, but it was sort of, they didn't know too much. Uh, and no one in Europe would really know too much about Scandinavia for quite some time. Uh, Scotland, um, and then uh, Scotland up here, excuse me, and then Ireland over here also had not really been reached by the gospel um, by 300 AD. Okay, so that's kind of the, but the gospel is going north and it is spreading uh, rapidly, okay? <clears throat> what started to happen in the 300s, okay, is Attila the Hun. Everyone's heard of Attila the Hun, right? Okay, so he comes over kind of uh, by the kind of Mongolia-Russian area, area uh, and the, the Huns were kind of, uh, ethnically speaking, kind of a mix between uh, kind of uh, Asian and kind of Russian blood, all right? So they would have looked kind of uh, a mix of white and Asian to us today. They come over, okay, uh, west, all right, because they are kind of running out of food and stuff. They have tried to take over China, didn't go over so well, so they need uh, to find some people to conquer and raid. Because that's basically how a lot of groups in the ancient world got food. I mean, you, you, you oftentimes, you did not have a skill other than warfare, and then that's how you got your food and your supplies uh, and you trade and so on and so forth. But the base of your economy was warfare, and that was true of the Huns, okay? So they come over, all right, and the first major group they run into is the German tribes, all right? And so that forces the German tribes to do what? Yeah, defend themselves, and all of a sudden they got to become more warlike. And also it pushed them south into the Roman Empire, okay? At the same time all this is going on, okay, by the time you get towards the end of the 300s, the Orthodox Church is starting to really win the battle, within the church itself at least, okay, in the Roman Empire against the Arians, largely because of Athanasius, but also you have some other church fathers come around. I didn't put them on your handout, but you might want to write them down, known as the Cappadocian Fathers, very, very important early church fathers, very important teachers who fought against um, uh, the uh, Arians um, and defended the Trinity, okay? <clears throat> So the Aryans kind of regroup, and they believe that the German tribes is fertile soil for their theology, for their church, okay? And they were not, they didn't like completely take over the German tribes, but they had a lot of success in converting the German tribes, okay? So the German tribes, by the time you get to the end of the 300s, are kind of a mix of Aryan and pagan. And you have all this chaos going on. You've got the Huns attacking, and they're also attacking parts of the Roman Empire as well. The Germans are now coming south. All right, and they resent the Roman Empire for two reasons. Because the Roman Empire had conquered a lot of the southern portions of the German tribes, all right, so there was animosity there. Plus, now that many of them are becoming Aryan, they feel that they've been pushed out and that the Orthodox Church has not treated them fairly. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's this heavy, heavy animosity. And the German tribes start to come south into the Roman Empire and they begin to attack big time. Eventually, they even uh, sacked Rome itself, the German tribes sacked Rome itself. And throughout the 400s, okay, write this down, German tribes are basically just tearing the Roman Empire apart. And the Roman Empire is running out of money and resources because it's running out of places to conquer, all right? It's having to fend off the Huns in the Roman Empire, fend off the Germans in the Roman Empire, so they can't really conquer the way they used to, and that's how they expanded and got more economic success, so on and so forth. Also, now that the church and the Roman Empire are becoming more and more married, the Roman Empire is spending a lot of money and expending a lot of uh, effort helping the church. Okay, So it wasn't the intent of the church uh, at all, but there was a sense, there really is a historical sense in which the church contributed to the downfall of the Roman Empire. I don't think in any kind of immoral or bad way, but I'm just talking about as, a, as, a, as the way history sometimes works. All right, That was something that led to the... Um, kind of dissipation of the resources of the Roman Empire, right? So I'm going to get to the 400s in just a minute, but just know the 400s was a chaotic century for the church. If the Arian controversy seemed chaotic, the 400s was extremely chaotic, okay? All right, <clears throat> so Athanasius is dealing with this throughout his whole life. I mean, he's being banished, he's coming back, he's trying to fight against the Arians, uh, you know, the Roman Empire is starting to fall apart. It was a tumultuous period to be a leader in the church, and as I talked about last week, he stuck with it and was very strong, and it's one reason why we consider him such a hero of the faith, all right? Uh, next thing I want to talk about under E is the closing of the canon, and this also has a lot to do with Athanasius, all right? 
As I said last week, the canon was something that was heavily debated in the church going back to the time of Marcion. And more and more, they're kind of closing in on of the debated books. Remember, the, close, the, deba- the debate was never about the core books. No one was debating on the Old Testament, if that belonged in Scripture or not. No one was debating the epistles of Paul. No one was debating the four Gospels. No one was debating Acts. All Orthodox Christian churches accepted all of those books. Does that make sense there? Their Scripture was pretty darn close to what ours is. There was debate over the what we call the Apocrypha. Does everyone know what that is? Okay, the, the Old Testament books that some Christians in the early church thought belonged in the canon. Some did not. To, today, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church accept some Apocryphal books, whereas Protestants, we do not. Okay, Although some Protestants go too far and they're like, they're, her- they're heretical, they're evil, they're bad. No, if you read the Apocrypha, most of those books, not all of them, but most of them are pretty solid uh, um, uh, books, pretty similar to Old Testament theology. In some areas, there's some problems and stuff. That's why we don't consider them scripture. Um, but the debate was over books like Revelation, um, Hebrews, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache. Okay, And more and more, the church is starting to come to the conclusion that we have today. Does that make sense? All right. But there was sort of this sense of which they wanted sort of a finality. Okay. Um, the three criteria that the church used, and I want to go through this quickly, was that a book should have either apostolic authorship, like they should have good proof that it was written by an, an apostle, or that it was written by somebody that was very close to an apostle. Okay. <clears throat> the second was it could not contradict, clearly contradict, any of the accepted books. If it contradicted any of the Old Testament books, any of the Gospels, Acts, Paul, it was out. And then the third criteria is that it had been accepted by most, the overwhelming majority of the Orthodox churches. When that was applied, especially to the New Testament, the 27 books that we have today really kind of emerged and the other ones were seen as good books but problematic. Does that make sense? Okay. And then the final sort of straw was Athanasius himself. Okay. Athanasius was so highly regarded in the church, as I talked about last week for very good reason, he wrote an Easter letter to the churches where he said, in my opinion, he did not give a decree or anything like this. And this also shows that the, the decision hadn't been uh, completely finalized at the Council of Nicaea, which is something you oftentimes see on TV. Um, he just said, look, in my estimation, my strong estimation, I believe these 27 books are the books that belong in the New Testament. All right. And because the church had already come pretty close to that conclusion, Athanasius's letter was sort of seen as kind of the final confirmation. Does that make sense? OK. And after that point, there really was not much debate in the Orthodox Christian churches over the books of the New Testament, okay? Now, there was still some debate over the Apocrypha, but after Athanasius, this is important, you should write this down, almost everybody, I mean literally, almost every good theologian said the Apocrypha is either not Scripture, or if it is Scripture, we should approach it with a lot of caution and we should always interpret it in light of the rest of the Old Testament. Not a lot of doctrine should be gleaned from the Apocrypha. So even people in the Middle Ages, okay, like Aquinas and others who accepted the Apocrypha, you don't see them trying to glean a lot of doctrine from it. Does that make sense? And that was a big deal, the Reformation, because the Catholic Church made a big switch, big switcheroo, and they said, uh, no, actually, you can get doctrine from the Apocrypha, and we're going to try to get doctrine, such as purgatory and other things. And the Reformers said, time out. That's never been how it's been done in the Church. You're, you're, you're crossing a serious uh, line, okay? And that reopened sort of the debate of the Old Testament canon, right? So even when I say the closing of the canon, it's sort of yes and no. Closing the New Testament canon, basically closing the Old Testament canon, but something to realize, the canon will not be truly and fully and finally and no questions closed until when? Honestly. In every sense of the word. Until Jesus returns. Do we still debate certain things in the canon to this day? Yes. Can anyone give me an example of a couple places of scripture where good, godly, Bible-believing, Orthodox Christians debate and debate vigorously as to whether they belong in the scriptures or not? Does anybody know a couple examples? What's that? Uh, James was at the Reformation, but after Luther kind of questioned it, and that's a good answer, but after Luther kind of questioned it, that debate kind of went away. Most don't debate whole books. I'm talking more about chunks of scripture. Uh, What's that? It's not Matthew, you're so close. Mark, yeah, the very end of Mark. Does anyone know the last verses of Mark chapter 16? Heavily debated by very conservative Orthodox scholars, okay? Um, Another one would be the woman caught in adultery. Okay, which most accept, but it's something to realize there is question, uh, textual reasons to question whether that should be in the canon or not. Okay, I believe that episode happened, don't get me wrong, uh, but that is something that is debated. Okay, so there is a sense in which the canon will always be debated, all right, but for the most part, after this point, 
most of the debate's gone away, and certainly after the Reformation, all right, most, you know, really serious debate uh, has been closed, okay? All right, um, let's move on to the 400s, okay? Century of heresy, all right? The Arian controversy sort of prepared the church for what was coming in the 400s. Because remember I talked about, for the Arian controversy, most, not all, but especially Gnosticism and most of these other groups, were really not trying to infiltrate the church so much. They were more trying to draw people out of the church, sort of like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses today. Okay, They, they saw themselves as fundamentally distinct. Arianism was different because it said, we want this to be the theology of the church, Okay, of, of what was considered the Orthodox Church. All right? All of these groups that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go through them quick, okay? All of them were similar to the Arians in that they too were trying to do their work within the church, right? And they caused a lot of uh, issues and a lot of problems, okay? All right, going to get through these quick, but just so that you guys know. And again, this really was what the church was, this was the reality during the 400s. It took up a lot of time and discussion when the church could have been dealing with other things. Again, don't get me wrong. God uses heresy to, to sharpen the church, but these were things that were um, very much a problem during the 400s. Okay? The first one is Donatism. Does anyone know what the Donatist heresy is? Any guesses? <clears throat> okay. Donist, the Donatist heresy was basically a group that was saying that the church had become too lax in its morals, all right? which is sometimes a good thing to, to point out. All right? But they became extremely harsh, extremely legalistic. They were fault finders. Okay, I mean, every little thing that the church, um, that they thought did wrong, they were going to point out. Okay, and they had all these doctrines about, you know, what was a legitimate baptism and what was not. And you had all these Christians thinking, I haven't really truly been baptized. And they, they put on all these legalistic sort of strictures on the church. All right. In many ways, they were very dangerous because they were so orthodox. Okay, sort of like the Arians. They didn't have a lot of, they didn't deny the Trinity. Uh, they didn't deny the humanity of Christ or anything like that. But they were a, just a very sort of nasty fault-finding group, okay? A group that sort of reminds me of them to an extent in the modern day. They've kind of gone away a little bit, but some of the elders and stuff I think would know who I'm talking about <clears throat> was sort of the, um, the Auburn theology. Do you guys remember that? Okay. Um, Auburn theology was sort of this movement within the reformed world to basically, it was just kind of a fault finder movement. It was just sort of nitpicking over every little thing that they thought that the PCA and the reformed uh, world was doing wrong, whether it be doctrinally, practically. And when you would read these guys on the web, they were just very, you know, uh, just really kind of harsh and nasty uh, in, in just about everything that they did. Even where there was places where I would agree with their theology, it was really the way they approached things. Does that make sense? Okay. And so that was kind of the issue with the, uh, the Donatists. All right. The next one was a much more serious heresy. <clears throat> Pelagianism. <clears throat> Donat <clears throat> uh, Pelagius was, Pelagianism was started by a guy by the name of Pelagius. He was a British monk. And he was very opposed to the theology of St. Augustine, which was becoming very, very popular in the church at the time. Okay? St. Augustine, whether you agree with everything or not, and I, I know in a Reformed church like this, we're going to have plenty of people who do, like myself, but even if you're someone who maybe doesn't agree with him on everything or not, um, uh, he was very orthodox, very biblical, very godly, very winsome in the way he went about theology and teaching it and trying to help others. Okay, um, And so he, he gained a large following. Uh, Pelagius did not like his emphasis on the sovereignty of God. He felt that that was a license for immorality, and he reacted very strongly to that, and he went way beyond biblical limits. Okay, Pelagius taught that we are born completely good, or at the very least neutral, All right, from the moment that we're conceived. We are not born with a sinful nature. To whatever extent we do sin, it's only because we're being influenced by the world or demonic forces or whatever, but ultimately we have a choice, all right? And he even went so far as to say that there has been people who have lived a perfect life according to God's law and did not truly need the cross of Christ. Now, he said the cross of Christ is there if you need it, and most people, most Christians do need it, but he actually went so far as to say there had been people who had lived a perfect life, followed the law of God perfectly, and went to heaven uh, based upon their merits apart from the work of uh, the cross, right? He completely denied original sin. He denied our sinful nature. It was very much a works uh, a salvation, okay? And Augustine and others, rightfully so, reacted very, very strongly um, uh, against that, okay? Today, what would, does anyone know what today would be the most similar to Pelagianism? Not in all ways, okay, but in a lot of ways. 
perfectionism, some forms of it. I want to be careful. Some are more orthodox than others, but yeah, absolutely. Perfectionism would be an excellent example. I thought, okay. <laughs> it, it depends on the form of it. Some are, 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 I disagree with some forms of it, but I wouldn't go so far as to call them heretical. But sure, it's, it's, it's moving in that direction, okay? Liberal theology, most liberal theology is absolutely finds the doctrine of original sin and that we have a sinful nature repugnant. They find it absolutely uh, horrid, okay? And so liberal theology today would be very similar to Pelagianism in a lot of respects, okay? <clears throat> all right, uh, finally, the Christological heresies. Um, I lump these all together because these have to do with the person of Christ, all right? I'm going to go through these quick. I went over these on the Trinity class. Um, Apollinarianism basically denied the soul of Christ. Might not seem like a big deal, but remember, the Bible pounds home. We are to believe in the full humanity of Christ. We are not to compromise on that in any way, shape, or form. And he said that Jesus had a human body, but his divine nature sort of took the place of his human soul. All right, And that makes a lot of problems problematic. Most notably, when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. Okay, he's obviously talking about his human soul, his human spirit. Okay, not his divine uh, nature. Okay. Uh, Nestorianism was the teaching that Jesus had uh, was two persons with two natures. Okay, the divine nature and the human nature were sort of like two people connected, and even used an analogy like two people tied together. So they're always together and always working together, but there's not a true union, and there is a sense in which only the humanity went through the passion of Christ. Obviously, we believe the deity did not literally die or was not literally pierced with a, a spear and did not literally suffer in you know the full sense of the word. But the deity was there and present and going through that in some sense of the word. And without that, we do not have an infinite atonement uh, uh, that can take care of our sins. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. All right. And then lastly, the Monophysites was probably the most dangerous of the three. They basically said the divine nature and the human nature blended together to form one divine human hybrid. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Why is that so dangerous? Might sound like, okay, again, hair splitting theology. Why should I care? What is that ultimately saying about God? If you're going to say that God literally changed, he literally morphed in some sense of the word into this divine hybrid. What are you saying about the divine nature when you say that? It's not immutable. It changed. It has now become finite. All right. It is not immutable. Um, it has become a, a finite being that's in one place at one time to some extent. Uh, and that really is, from a scriptural standpoint, blasphemous. I mean, it might not seem that bad to us, but that really is. Okay. And the church reacted strongly against that uh, for good reason. Okay. All right. That led to the Council of Chalcedon, which took place in kind of the mid 400s. <clears throat> As I've said before, the basic doctrines of the church have always been there, but they have not always been fully and completely defined, all right? Heresy is used by God to sort of sharpen the church and for us to come to sort of this definitional uh, uh, um, standards on doctrine. So the church had always believed Jesus was God. You can take that to the bank. They had always believed that Jesus was fully human. They had never explicitly said that he was, uh, um, you know, two persons connected, okay? So we sort of understood that he was God, he was human, but the church didn't really try to overly define how that worked until the Council of Chalcedon, okay? And then going to scripture, all right, the church said that Jesus is uh, one person with two natures, all right? And that this is extremely important stuff. Anything else, all right, and you're really denying either the full deity of Christ or you're denying the full humanity of Christ, which the Bible says um, is really of the Antichrist to do that, all right? <clears throat> The two natures, divine nature, human nature, perfectly united in one person. And the church didn't try, if it sounds like the church is trying to define the undefinable, it really didn't try to get overly specific. It didn't say, I don't, the church said, we don't really know exactly how the two natures interacted with each other. We can't explain every single hard question. Not every passage can we fully get at its meaning, okay? But they said, at least we can say this. You cannot say that Jesus is anything less than fully God. You cannot say that Jesus is any less than fully human. And you cannot say that the two were blended together or they were just sort of two persons sort of loosely connected. Does that make sense? All of those lead to very dangerous teachings, and they really make a mess of a lot of passages. Okay. All right. Um, next key figure would be St. Augustine. Oh, man, I wish I could spend a lot of time on him. Okay, and I'm probably going to get a couple emails. I haven't gotten any complaint emails yet, but if I'm going to get one, it's going to be over this. I can almost guarantee it. Okay, you only spent like three minutes on Augustine? What is wrong with you? Again... Time is of the essence. Uh, yes, sir, Mark. Is it Augustine or <laughs> um, One second, let me answer that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. 
In my opinion, quickly, I think it's Augustine. I'm just so used to pronouncing it Augustine. I grew up in the Bay Area where everything was like St. Augustine Church and da 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 da. But from my understanding, not that it's a huge difference, um, uh, but people talk about which is the right pronunciation. That's where the question comes from. I, I'm pretty sure it's Augustine. Okay, Augustine. Yeah. But I almost always say Augustine, and you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. St. Augustine, what makes St. Augustine so important is that he was so um, resolute in his fight against the Donatists and the Pelagians. All right. The Christological heresies kind of came a little bit after his time. Uh, St. Uh, Augustine was late 300s, early 400s, okay? Um, and he, uh, I'm sure he would have fought against the Christological heresies valiantly, but his focus was mostly on those two groups, all right? <clears throat> and through that, through that controversy, we get some of the best theological writings that you'll ever read. I encourage you, if you have the chance, to read Augustine. I don't agree with him on everything. He's a product of his time and in culture. Um, uh, but again, he is really, really sound. To give you some idea of the importance of Augustine, no one was quoted more than Augustine throughout the Middle Ages, okay, than he was by far. Other than the Bible itself, all right, he was sort of the theologian, especially in the Western church. Lots of church fathers were quoted, but you could oftentimes take a theologian in the Middle Ages, and you could take all the quotes from all the ancient church fathers together, and they would still be less than somebody quoted Augustine. That's the level of authority he had. All right? I can't get into every way in which he clarified so many points that the church had been grappling with and was confused over. Um, but again, if you read his writings, he's not a systematic theologian, so sometimes he can be all over the place in certain books or, you know, like the confessions, okay, it's more kind of like his experience in coming to Christ, but you get a lot of theology, uh, uh, really good stuff from that, all right? But oftentimes he's not, you know, as, as straightforward and as clear as Calvin or Luther or Aquinas, um, but he's very, very good and he's, he's very personable. Very, you really get his piety in a way that sometimes you don't always get from reading Aquinas or, or Calvin. We know from other sources how godly and pious those guys were, but it doesn't always, you get their passion for sure, but it doesn't always their piety come through. Augustine, you always get the sense on which how much um, uh, he is in love with Christ. Okay, So it's very, very enjoyable reading, especially um, the Confessions. If you read only one book of uh, Augustine's, I would recommend the, the Confessions. Okay, Very, very good stuff. <clears throat> All right, next major figure is Jerome. Jerome as a theologian is sort of okay-ish. He's, he's really good on some stuff. He's not the best on others. He can get a little wackadoodle in, in, in the opinion of most Reformed people, my, myself included. Okay, What makes Jerome so important? Why do I have to put him on this, even though he's maybe not my biggest, I'm not the biggest fan of him as a theologian, but you got to put him on, on the, uh, a church history handout like this. Does anyone know? What did he do? Vulgate. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor. You can't, you can't exclude Jerome because that was a massive, massive impact upon the church. You just can't. All right. If you know what the Vulgate is, that was the translation of the Bible into Latin. The Eastern church was still mostly speaking what? Greek. Okay. So they continued to use the Greek New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and they used what Old Testament? Does anyone know? Septuagint. Okay. Very good. The Septuagint was the um, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And that was the, really the Bible uh, of, of the church for a very long time. But the West more and more started to speak Latin. If you read my handout on the Middle Ages, I go over this a lot more detail, okay? Sort of the split in culture between the East and the West. But even before the Middle Ages, this was starting to happen, the Western church was speaking mostly Latin. Originally, that was the military language of the Roman Empire, and that started to become the language of the people, okay? And Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. And it was called the Vulgate, because what does the word Vulgate come from? Vulgar, okay? It was the language of the people. And what is so ironic, if you ever argue with King James only people, have everyone, has anyone ever heard of the King James only stuff? I know Walt has. He's had some encounters, okay? You always get people who want to stick to an old translation no matter what. This has been a problem throughout church history, and it's not biblical, okay? We need to take the scriptures and make them accessible to the language of the people. Now, we want to be careful and have good translations. Sometimes you can have really bad translation, like the message and, and the passion translation. And there's, some, there's, some, there's some bad ones, okay? Um, but again, it's always important to have translations that are accessible to the people, okay? 
Jerome in his day was heavily criticized because they said, how can you translate the Bible into Latin? How dare you do that? The Bible is only in Greek, okay? Which was ironic because the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew, okay? It's again, it's just, you see this happen again and again in church history, okay? Eventually people got over that. And the Vulgate became the Bible of the Western Church, okay? And then later on in the Middle Ages, when people tried to translate the Bible into other languages, what did people say? How dare you? What is the Bible? The Vulgate, and only the Vulgate, okay? And it's like, the Vulgate itself was a translation. And Jerome went through the same criticism when he was making that translation, okay? And you have the same thing today, okay? You can't, the King James is it, I mean, that is, whether people believe it's actually inspired, which some people do, is a really extreme position. Others are just like, it's the best, it served English people well, why would we change it? Well, uh, because most people don't use these and thous and stuff anymore, okay? Uh, if I tried to teach my kids, okay, from the King James Bible, I don't think it would have gone very well, okay? Especially my one son with a learning disability, oh my gosh, it would have been a nightmare, okay? Uh, um, you know, again, it, new translations are very helpful, all right? They're very, very helpful, and we see... Uh, that throughout the church, right? But you always have this tension anytime there's a new translation where people are like, no way, we gotta stick to the old stuff, okay? Um, but again, um, that's an important principle for throughout church history, but also just to remember the impact that the Vulgate had. It eventually did become the Bible of the Western church throughout the Middle Ages, okay? <clears throat> and, uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, again, I don't, I don't like a lot of the, the newer translations. I think the ESV is excellent. That's what most reformed churches use. I think the NIV gets a bad rap. There's definitely some parts of the NIV I would have translated differently. Don't get me wrong. Not that I'm a translator, but just from what I know. Um, the NASB is excellent. Um, I use the New Living Translation with my younger boys only because they just struggle to understand the Bible. And a lot of times I'll say, look, this part is a little bit fuzzy and it, it probably means more of this. Does that make sense? Okay, but definitely uh, the message, I, I, I know people will criticize me for being a legalist. It's, not, it's just not a translation. It's just a bad work. It's just flat out, it's a bad work. It's not the word of God. And, and I'm, I'm going to stick to that even if people don't like to hear that. Um, the uh, What is the NAR one? I think it's the Passion Translation. Does anyone know? Um, I, I think it's the Passion Translation. Uh, basically, this guy from the NAR, which is the movement that's saying they're, they're modern-day apostles, and you have to listen to what they say because they're apostles. He basically, even though he has no background in translating, he has now said that God has told him how to translate the Bible into English, and it's becoming one of the most popular um, uh, selling Bibles online. It's also very, very bad. Um, so again, stay away from, from that one. Okay? But yes, you are absolutely correct, Bob. All right. Um, okay, moving on quickly to Chrysostom. In my opinion, kind of the last of the, the, the great church fathers, okay? I gave you guys a list of the sort of pre-Nicene fathers, Irenaeus, Cyprian, uh, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, those guys. We've gone over some post-Nicene church fathers. I haven't gone over all of them, but the big ones, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, Jerome, uh, and then I would kind of put Chrysostom on that list. Um, Chrysostom wasn't really a theologian per se, but he gets lumped in with the church fathers, and I think rightfully so, because there's just so much good theology in his sermons, all right? Chrysostom was mostly known for his preaching, all right? I would definitely say he was the greatest preacher of the ancient church era. Not necessarily the greatest theologian, okay? I would definitely say Athanasius or Augustine uh, would take that. But definitely um, uh, the greatest preacher of the uh, ancient church uh, era, okay? If you ever get a chance to read his writings, very good stuff. Not perfect. He's a, he's a product of his time and culture and the theology of the ancient church, uh, which I think has some problems. But for the most part, very, very sound. Um, he's also very, very exegetical in his preaching. Okay, Real quick, something you should write down. Again, I wish I had more time to go over all these different things. There were kind of two schools of thought as to how to exegete scripture in the ancient church. You had the more literal approach that was uh, kind of similar to how we as Reformed would interpret the scriptures from Antioch, the Antioch school of thought. And then you had the allegorical school of thought, which was in Alexandria, okay? Now, they certainly didn't go anywhere near as far as the Gnostics. I'm not saying they're heretical, all right? They would start with the sort of straightforward um, uh, exegesis, and they would say doctrine. And here's what really separates them from Gnostics, okay? They weren't always consistent with this, but here's what separates them from Gnostics. They said doctrine can only come from the initial 
uh, literal sense of scripture, okay? And it kind of protected them from a lot of stuff. But they did believe that you could go beyond that literal sense into the allegorical sense, which they oftentimes split up into a number of sub-senses, and that could get a little strange and weird, kind of like the Gnostics. Never to a heretical sense, but you'd read a passage and they'd be exegeting and you'd be like, where the heck is he getting this from, okay? In my opinion, sort of the worst of the um, Alexandrian exegetes would be who? Does anyone know? Who really could take um, allegory too far. What's that? Origin. I think both of you guys said excellent. Origin. Origin is becoming kind of more popular, and I don't think that's a good thing, okay? Um, Origin was actually declared a heretic by the Western Church. The Eastern Church was a little bit more ambivalent because he had been so influential in the Eastern Church. But again, whether you call him a full-blown heretic or not, a lot of his theology is very problematic. He is a good scholar. He was a tremendous scholar, all right, and he helped the church in that regard. Uh, he had universalistic tendencies, which I think right there is a big red flag, okay? And that was one of the primary reasons why the Western Church uh, didn't want to go with origin, okay? All right, so moving on from some of the church fathers, still in the 400s AD. Now, mind you, all this chaos is going on in the rest of the Roman Empire, all right? You've got the Huns, you've got the barbarians, you've got all these uh, um, heretical groups, okay? This is a chaotic time, okay? And in the midst of this, you have one of the greatest evangelists of all time come about, okay? Uh, St. Patrick, all right? It's really unfortunate that he's become so associated with partying and beer, okay, in our day and age, all right? He was really quite a godly man and didn't drink that much, uh, but there's a long history as to why that happened, okay? I'm actually Irish by blood, so I could actually explain that history a little bit more, uh, but I'm not going to. Um, uh, but the, the original, the man, if we can get behind the myth and the, the holiday and all the sort of nonsense, the man was an extremely uh, godly man, and he was one of the first, okay, uh, um, really kind of pioneer evan evangelists and really going way away from his home. It's not that other people hadn't traveled, okay, but there was a sense in which most people felt it was best for the um, evangelists of the church to, as much as possible, evangelize to those within their own culture, okay? Um, St. Patrick was actually born in England, all right? He was the uh, apostle, so it's not the technical, literal apostle, but, you know, the, the evangelist to the Irish. And today, you might think, well, that's not that different of a culture. In, in his day and age, the English, it was really technically kind of before the English, I'm just saying, what is England today? were very different culturally from what was the Irish Celts of that time. Does that make sense? Okay. He was raised in a Christian home, very much rebelled against the upbringing of his uh, parents, didn't want anything to do with Christianity. He actually went out to a pagan party, and, okay, you might be like, whoa, there's the drinking connection. Well, not really. But, but okay, he went out to a pagan party, and he was kidnapped by the Irish who were coming in to what is today England or Britain, okay, Britannia at the time, and they would take slaves back to Ireland. And he was a slave in Ireland for quite some time. And it was a rough existence. I mean, I'm talking about uh, they would sleep in the barns at night, uh, just taking care of the animals. I lived in Scotland for a year. Uh, Northern Britain, okay, is cold, really cold, all right? It was, he almost died, okay, on a few occasions. Uh, very horrible existence, all right? And one night, he pretty much just out of desperation, almost dead, basically just prayed to receive Christ. You might be like, well, how did he know? Remember, he was raised in a Christian home. He knew the truth in his heart. He had just rejected it. He accepted Christ, uh, and he felt that God was calling him to try to escape. And he did escape. He was successful, went back to Britain, found his parents, okay? And um, they wanted him to just start going to church and live a normal Christian life and hopefully not get kidnapped again. But God had other ideas. God was strongly calling him to go back to Ireland and preach the gospel, all right? As you can imagine, his parents were not thrilled with that idea, okay? They're like, you just came back, they kidnapped you, they enslaved you, and now you want to go back to them? To them, this was craziness. But again, he had the mind of Christ. He wanted to go back uh, and preach the gospel to the Irish people. <clears throat> um, so he uh, actually went into what was kind of at the time Gaul. He trained for the ministry and went back to Ireland uh, and really against a lot of odds. The, the Celts tried to kill him on multiple occasions and they were never able to do it. Um, he was highly responsible. It wasn't a sole effort, don't get me wrong. Highly responsible for converting uh, the Irish people uh, to the gospel. Right? A lot of people don't realize, a lot of people to this day, because he was later canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of people think that he was technically a Roman Catholic. That's actually not correct, all right? He had a lot of tension with the Catholic Church back on the continent, a lot of tension. They didn't like his methods. They didn't like a lot of the way that he was doing things, okay? And he really established sort of a separate church, a church that was later, you'll read about in the handout in the Middle Ages, that was incorporated into um, the Catholic Church. But originally, it was a separate church known as the Celtic Church, and it had a slightly different approach to the liturgy, theology, and just sort of 
it was a very different approach to life, okay? The Celts were very, very artistic people, uh, and uh, St. Patrick really embraced that, okay? Uh, whereas the church on the continent was trying to, get, trying to get them to get rid of that. They thought of it as a very pagan and very bad. And he said, look, don't make pagan art, okay? But again, art is a good thing. This is something you guys are very talented in, all right? And you should uh, foster this. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right. Um, so that kind of brings us to the close of the ancient church era. I know it's going really fast, but I really wanted to get to Aquinas and Joan of Arc. <clears throat> I know I don't have a lot of time, but I think I can get through it in 10 minutes because uh, I'm going to do a broad brush stroke. Um, but I wanted to get to these guys. <clears throat> it might seem like I'm kind of just picking up these guys in the middle of nowhere. Please read the handout this week and you'll kind of see where they fit in the context. Okay? But I wanted to talk about these guys kind of in a more thematic sense um, because in some ways they kind of tie together, all right? Thomas Aquinas and Joan of Arc were two of the most influential and inspirational people in church history. And what I kind of wanted to focus on, kind of as I conclude today, because I kind of went over a lot of technical stuff and other things, but I, I, from originally I promised I'd stick to kind of the more inspirational story of church history. Joan of Arc and Thomas Aquinas were very, very sort of socially awkward off people to put it mildly, okay? These were not the kind of people that you would think would be some of the greatest leaders in church history. Aquinas suffered, okay? He was from a very noble, very rich, very kind of cocky sort of, they thought of themselves as very kind of sexy, hot stuff kind of family. And he was literally, I'm serious, and he literally was born into this family with very serious health problems, okay? He was very obese, okay, from the time he was a very young child, and that obesity never went away. And this was before the day and age where people didn't realize obesity doesn't always have uh, everything to do with how much you eat. Does that make sense? Some people just struggle with that, and it really doesn't matter what they do, okay? Uh, Aquinas throughout his life tried to fast, pray, whatever he could, and he just kept getting bigger and bigger, okay? Um, they eventually, okay, when he would come and sit down with the monks, they had to cut out a portion of the table just to make room for him. And he was very self-conscious of this, very embarrassed by this. Also, Aquinas had a giant head. Everyone who saw him, no, seriously, everyone who saw him described how much just stood out. And I used to say that to my students, and they'd be, oh, because he's really smart, right? I'm like, nah, I don't know that that's the connection there, okay? But he just had this really large head. People made fun of him from the time that he was an extremely, extremely young man. I mean, we're talking really, even when he got up into the ministry. You might be like, aren't these Christians studying for the priesthood? Well, in that day and age, a lot of times people studied for the priesthood more as a job rather than a calling, okay? And so he was heavily, heavily mocked uh, and made fun of throughout his entire life, all right? Uh, and in spite of that, okay, Aquinas went on to be uh, one of the greatest theologians uh, of all time, all right? I'll go into more of the reasons why we get the Reformation, all right? I know a lot of Reformed people don't always like Aquinas, okay, because he did agree with sort of some Catholic theology on some points. Um, and he was very big on natural theology, and a lot of Reformed people don't really like natural theology. But I will say this, and I'll explain this more later. Make no mistake about it. Without Aquinas, there'd be no Renaissance. And without the Renaissance, there'd be no what? Reformation. There's such a direct line. You don't have to be as big a fan of Aquinas as I am, but I'm telling you there's a direct line. All right. Despite his problems and there's issues in his theology, okay, he really pushed the church to say we need, okay, to be scholars across the board because up until this point, most Christian theologians, even the best, like Athanasius, Augustine, so on and so forth, the focus was only on Scripture. Now, again, obviously that's a good thing, okay, but the church had become somewhat of an embarrassment. I mean, really, we were so behind Islam and Judaism and paganism, okay, in what kind of areas? What's that? Yeah, all the academic subjects, medicine, technology, all these things. And it was kind of an embarrassment. All right. And Aquinas said, yes, scripture is the foundation. Scripture is where we, but we still need to apply scripture to every aspect of life. OK. And that led to the Renaissance, which, yes, had some problems. But without the scholarship of the Renaissance, the, the, the theme of the Renaissance was go back to the sources. And that's what the reformers did. Is they went back to the sources, the church fathers. Augustine, Athanasius, and the scriptures, and it absolutely blew the Roman Catholic Church apart. They couldn't argue against it because the reformers were so knowledgeable about the um, original sources, and a lot of that came about because of the Renaissance. Okay, um, All right, got six minutes to go over Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, also okay, very, very socially awkward young woman. From a young age, accepted Christ. She lived in a time okay, when the church was very, very weak. We're going to talk about this next week when we go over the Reformation. Very weak, spiritually, doctrinally, um, just, just about everything. Corruption 
in the 1400s is rampant within the church, right? And who is the focus on at this point in the Middle Ages? Is it on Jesus? No, who's it on? Okay, Mary, okay, and the saints, especially Mary, all right? And so for this young woman to come along, and from the time she's like three or four years old, all right, to be completely and totally on fire for Jesus was just something that people had never seen, all right? She is made fun of uh, by her family. She's made fun of by her neighbors. At one point, her dad even told her brothers they might need to drown her because she's so wacky, all right? And for no other reason, this is even before she said she started having uh, uh, um, voices, okay? Uh, for no other reason other than they just couldn't understand uh, somebody that was that sort of on fire for Jesus, all right? In this time in the Middle Ages, Jesus was seen as very, very what? Okay. Distant, unapproachable. Yes, okay. Out there. Angry, mean, harsh. You don't go to Jesus directly. You go through the Pope. You go through the priest. You go through the Mass. You go through Mary. You go through the saints. For this little girl, okay, to be talking nothing about Jesus was just seen as bizarre. Okay. All right. Uh, eventually, I can't go into all of her exploits. You get a chance to read about Joan of Arc. She is awesome. Obviously, as Reformed Christians, there are going to be some things you're going to be like, oh, I don't know about that. And that's okay. She's a product of her time and her culture. I don't know exactly how to pl- uh, uh, explain these voices she thought she heard. Maybe she really had some mental illnesses in spite of her, you know, uh, piety. Um, maybe she really just was so convicted of her calling that she really just sort of tried to justify them through these so-called uh, voices. I don't know. This was a common thing in the ancient church in the Middle Ages. I talked about this with similar with Perpetua. It's something, if you're looking for a perfect Christian with perfect theology, especially before the Reformation, I'm telling you, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Okay, And that's just something you have to get used to when you study uh, church history. And Joan of Arc was no different. Okay, The reason I like to emphasize Joan of Arc so much, especially as Reformed Christians, we got to be honest. Our history is we tend to emphasize, and I know I might make some people uncomfortable when I say this, but it's true. I've been in the Reformed world for a long time. I've been studying Reformed theology for a long time. We tend to emphasize white men who are theologians. That, those are our heroes, okay? And we need to branch out from that, okay? That's why I talked about Perpetua. That's why, you know, I'm going to go over, uh, I'm going to kind of backtrack and go to the Reformation, go over uh, Augustine's mother, Monica. We're going to go over uh, Luther's wife, Katerina von Bora. We need to get past that a little bit, Okay. Joan of Arc has been a major inspiration for Christians uh, for centuries, okay, um, especially, okay, uh, uh, to women believers, all right, and for good reason, all right. Despite all of her kind of eccentricities and off on her theology, she felt a strong calling from God to uh, liberate France from England, and England at this time was a major aggressor in the Middle Ages, okay. They had conquered France uh, for the most part. They were brutal in their treatment of the French. Bear in mind, if you're like, oh, this all sounds so Catholic or whatever, this is the same English that uh, just 50 years prior was horrifically persecuting the Lollards in England, okay? So again, we're talking about an England, okay, that was very aggressive, had a lot of problems, and could be very brutal and barbaric in some of their tactics, okay? And Joan of Arc felt a very strong calling to liberate France, and against literally crazy odds, all right, she did that. I mean, she, she was successful. So I don't totally know how to explain the voices, but it is a fact of history, okay, that this very godly woman was used to liberate France, all right? She led French armies into battle, okay, against tremendous odds. Oftentimes, the French would be outnumbered almost five to one, and the French men soldiers would be, like, cowering, and she would be like, this is God's will, we're doing this. And she'd go, like, charging off, and they'd be like, okay, I guess we better follow, right? And so, and they'd go, and she she liberated so many towns that by the end of her tenure, she would go to English, uh, French towns that had been conquered by the English, and they wouldn't even put up a fight. They literally opened the gates for her. They were like, come on in. We're done. You took us over. I mean, because that was the reputation that she had been used by God to conquer so many uh, cities. Remarkable woman. If you ever get a chance to read her biography, and as a Reformed Christian, if you can sort of get over some of the weird stuff, it is really, really an interesting, uh, fascinating story, okay? Eventually, she was conquered by the English, okay? And English clergy, mind you, not the clergy of the whole church, but the English clergy condemned her as a heretic for no other reason that she wore male clothes, okay? Which, by the way, Joan of Arc was not advocating women being in the military on a regular basis. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to step on that landmine here, okay? We can talk about political stuff. I'm going to bring up political stuff towards the end of the class. Regardless of what your position is on that, I'm simply saying Joan of Arc wasn't advocating that one way or the other, okay? She wasn't advocating transgenderism or wearing men's clothes on a regular basis. She was just saying, for a short period of time, 
This was her calling, and in order to do that calling, she needed to wear armor, and all of the armor in that day was made for who? Men, okay? All right? Uh, and so um, uh, she was condemned for wearing men's clothing, even though she did not advocate anything even remotely heretical on that front, okay? Um, and she was burned at the stake, okay? Um, amazing thing, okay? She was praying and singing hymns throughout the entire time she was being burned, Many of the English soldiers, okay, uh, and English clergy who had condemned her, okay, literally after that went back into the church and repented. I'm not saying all of them down to the last man, but there were plenty. Kind of like Jesus on the cross where the, the Roman soldier was like, this man truly was the son of God. Many of them were like, this truly was a woman uh, of God. And her last words, again, very rare in this day and age, very rare in this day and age. It was really sad how corrupt the church had become. Her last words before she gave up her spirit, she screamed it out as loud as she could, were just Jesus, okay? Again, her focus from the time she was a little kid all the way until then, all right? The last thing I'm going to say is, please, again, might sound cheesy, might sound corny, might sound kind of, you know, we repeat this a lot in our society, but it really is true, okay? Um, uh, uh, you know, I've been a teacher and youth pastor for a long time. Some of the people that we think are the most odd and the most weird and, you know, we're just like, I hope God sort of takes care of them, oftentimes they end up being the most influential, the most powerful. So again, especially with young people, don't judge by appearances. You never know what can happen, okay? If Aquinas and Joan of Arc can end up being as used as they were, as socially bizarre and awkward as they were, God can use anybody, okay? All right, uh, yes, Chuck, real quick. Let me just interrupt real quick. Anyone who needs to go, because I got in trouble for going past 1020, go ahead. And, but yes, Chuck, go ahead. Um, I would say, I would say anybody, in my opinion, as I've talked about in other classes, that if you are truly converted to Christ, not right away, not like in an instant, but over the course of your life, you're going to become more and more orthodox. And so, yes, I would certainly see that connection, that, that those church fathers, they were, they were so orthodox because they were truly converted to Christ from the outset. Does that answer your question? And I know we've had a lot of discussions on this, Chuck, and I know it's an issue that you're sensitive to. What do we make of heretical groups? Again, my position is there are some that are saved within those groups. I'm not going to be so harsh, but I would say God is, is generally leading them out of those groups uh, because, because they're out of bounds. All right? So I do tie orthodoxy and salvation in, but I don't tie it in as, as tightly as some people where it's like, you know, if you don't have perfect theology from the moment you're saved, well, then you're not really saved. Or that we're saved by our theology. Those are all positions that I think are going too far. Okay? All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.